Hey there, welcome back. Um, man, I'm I'm ready to rock and roll. Before we do though, I, I wanna wanna caution everybody. If you're like me, sometimes I will pop in and out of podcasts and episodes and not really care if I listen to them in order, but this is one as I'm going sequentially through some of the writings of Brandon Andrus that if you missed part one, you really do need to hit pause, go back, and listen to that. I, mean, I don't guess you have to have to, but this will be so much better if you do. And so I am going to briefly say, you know, support the show. Thank you for downloading it. Consider supporting on Patreon, rate and review, all the normal things that people say. But I really just want to get into this because something about hell, mm, it's big. And so here we go. Part two on It Is Time to Talk About Hell. One must understand the end toward which we are moving with God in order to interpret and understand the points along the biblical narrative's trajectory. In other words, if a person believes that eternity in hell is the end toward which the majority of people throughout history are heading, then it's only natural that they would interpret specific words, phrases, and teachings, specific words, phrases, teachings, and parables in the Bible toward that end. But what if there is an end toward which we are moving that isn't an eternity in hell? And what if this end is the interpretive lens that will help us understand specific words, phrases, teachings, and parables in the Bible differently? I would suggest the end toward which we are moving, that is in line with the prophetic vision throughout Scripture, has always been the restoration of all things. It is the realization of a renewed cosmos in which God will be all in all in which death will no longer prevail, and whole and healed individuals and relationships will flourish. It is the belief that at the right time, all things in heaven and earth will be brought together in perfect unity in Christ, also known as the reconciliation of all things. And this makes the goal of God's justice restorative in nature rather than retributive. Now, Brandon tells a story where he was in college and dating Jenny, who is now his wife, and there was a Friday night in which they were planning to hang out, and as the minutes and then the hours began to pass, he became increasingly impatient, frustrated, and angry that she was taking so long, not answering phone calls, and basically ruining the Friday. But after several hours of waiting in his room with no response, there was finally a knock at his door, and as she walked in, his anger was evident is fuming mad and peppering with a litany of questions. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Why are you so late? Why didn't you answer my calls? Brandon then says, you know, I'm certain I wasn't listening to anything that she was saying. There wasn't an answer that would satisfy my anger. But then instead of trying to answer my questions, she just handed me a card. And it wasn't just any card. 
It was a card that she had meticulously and patiently and lovingly crafted for me over the previous three hours, and it detailed in overwhelming specificity all the memorable moments that we had shared together as a couple and how much she loved me. He got very silent, like stick my foot in my mouth silent, and then despite anger and bewilderment and the fact that it would have been easier for her to simply withhold the card or just break up with him because he didn't come close to deserving the card, she demonstrated her unwavering love by giving it to him anyway. His anger turned to regret, and it was her kindness, not her justified retaliation, that made him see ugliness. It was her kindness, despite how it violated the relationship, that changed his heart. So when you are confronted with the reality of an undeserved kindness, it can be transformative. And that is what we find in one of the most misunderstood parables of the Bible. The rich man and Lazarus, many have used this moral story as a definitive proof text for eternity in hell, but it is far from it. In the parable, two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, from the grave or after his death, the rich man is confronted with how he treated Lazarus, a poor beggar during his life. Upon facing the truth of how poorly he treated him, he was filled with sorrow. So what do we know about this parable? The rich man represents Israel. We know this because in the last line, Father Abraham says to the rich man, If your brothers do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And like the majority of Jesus' parables, this parable is an indictment of the arrogant religious leaders of Israel for how they viewed themselves and how they viewed and treated others. But more importantly, the parable is teaching them the necessity for living righteously in the present. A few things to note. In this parable, we find words like Hades, torment, and suffering. So it seems pretty obvious that this parable is telling us about what an eternity in hell is like, right? Not so fast. What if I told you that in facing the truth of his life, the rich man is being tested and refined? And what if I told you that he is not being tormented by a wrathful God, but transformed and restored into a right relationship with God and others? And what if I told you that what he is experiencing is not suffering, but rather the pain of regret and the consuming sorrow of facing the truth about himself? That is what the biblical text actually suggests. The rich man is experiencing another Greek word I can't pronounce, odnaio, which is a Greek word that means consuming sorrow, not physical suffering. More importantly, the word basanos, which is translated as torture in this parable, means a touchstone. A touchstone is the black silicone tablet, like slate, that is used to test the purity of soft metals. To me, this implies that there is a process one goes through to determine the quality of one's life. Absolutely fascinating. This reminds me of Paul's word to the Corinthians when he writes, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it is revealed or tested by fire, and the fire will prove what kind of work each person's is. If the work that someone has built endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work should be burned away, he will suffer loss. Yet he shall be saved, though so as by fire. Interestingly, this is exactly what we find in another parable referred to in the unmerciful servant. For context, 
Peter asks Jesus how many times a person ought to be forgiven. Jesus responds that we should not simply forgive seven times, but rather forgive 70 times seven, which is a direct reference to the year of Jubilee within Judaism. According to Jewish law, the Israelites were instructed to celebrate a Sabbath year at the beginning of every seventh year. This means that every seventh year, the land, animals, and people were to be given a rest from work. It was a time for rejuvenation and replenishment. And then after seven cycles of seven Sabbath years, 49 years, the people would celebrate by proclaiming freedom throughout the land, returning land to their original owners, and canceling all debts. The poor would no longer be oppressed, and the slaves would all be set free. This was the year of Jubilee. It was a time of resetting and righting inequities and injustices. So what about a cycle of 70 Jubilees times 7? Theologian N.T. Wright writes, That sounds like the Jubilee of Jubilees. So, though 490 years, nearly half a millennium, it is indeed a long time. The point is this. When time finally arrives, it will be the greatest redemption of all. This will be the time of real, utter, and lasting freedom. So, to Peter, Jesus is suggesting that we keep forgiving until all is restored, that we keep forgiving until all is made right, that we keep forgiving until all are made free, that we keep forgiving until all are redeemed, and that we keep forgiving until every debt is paid. That's when he tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. It is a story about a king who forgives the debt of a servant who owes him 10,000 talents or about 20 years worth of wages. The servant then goes to a fellow servant who owes him significantly less money and demands that he repay it immediately. But because his fellow servant could not repay it, he threw him in prison. Based upon the context in which this parable was told, with the Jubilee of Jubilees hovering closely in the background, where do you think the parable is heading? How do you expect the king to now treat his servant who was unmerciful to the other servant? And if the king represents God, how do you expect God to treat those who were unmerciful to others? The way the story is typically translated and understood by Christians is that, like the king, God will torture people in hell who are unmerciful to others. But shockingly, guess which word shows up in this parable? Basanos. It says the king in his settled, controlled anger, orge, hands the slave over to the inquisitor not to be tortured but to face the truth of who he had become and to test the quality of his life until the debt is repaid. But see, that is the kicker. What debt needs to be repaid to God? The only debt that needs to be repaid is love. In the context of the Jubilee of Jubilees, or in light of the greatest redemption, we know that God is a God of forgiving all debts in love, forgiving until it's all restored in love, forgiving until all is made right in love, forgiving until all are made free in love, and forgiving until all are redeemed in love. And that is the thing about facing the refining fire of God's love, or facing the inquisitor, or being salted with fire. It reveals the truth of who we are and how we have treated others. But it is not for the sake of retribution and punishment. It is for the sake of individual transformation and wholly restoring a person into a right relationship with God and with others.
And to be honest, that's why so many Christians misunderstand so many passages throughout the New Testament, because they read it as if the whole point is wrath and punishment rather than forgiveness, mercy, and restoration. For instance, many Christians read Romans 9 not as a set of rhetorical questions that Paul is asking as a part of a larger thought, but as an apocalyptic horror story read without context in which God creates objects of wrath for the purpose of destruction. I, however, read the larger thought of Romans 9-11 through 11 as a fitting end to the parable of rich man and Lazarus. It is about how God's kindness and mercy will ultimately prevail and lead to Israel's restoration despite her unrighteousness. In fact, Romans 11 ends by stating that despite everyone's disobedience and unrighteousness, God has mercy on them all. Imagine that. Whether it is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, or the king and the unmerciful servant, or whether it is Jesus' words about forgiveness and the jubilee of jubilees, or Paul's letter to the church in Rome, what we consistently find woven throughout every word and every account is a forgiving and merciful God who is always working for the restoration of people and relationships, who is always working toward Eden, who is always working toward Shalom. And it is this kindness of God that leads to repentance and transformation and whole and healed relationships, just like his wife Jenny's kindness when he didn't deserve it. It was her forgiveness and mercy that helped him see the truth of who he was and what he had become. Sure, it produced grief and sorrow within that was painful to face, but it led to transformation and then to a restoration of the relationship and then to a beautiful marriage with three kids. The truth is that some people are able to discover the kindness and mercy of God and then face the reality of who they've become, some sooner than others, some even be in this lifetime. But whether it's now or sometime in the future, we will all face the consuming fire of God's love, but it is not the fire of hell for eternity we have been threatened with our whole lives. Now, I know a few of you are still salivating and licking your chops, imagining that I left Hades dangling without a dress. No worries though, we're about to get there. recently read an article from a guy who said that Jesus was the great theologian of hell. The problem is that hell is never once mentioned in the Bible. I know this may be shocking. I know this may be a shocking statement for some of you because that is what you have heard your entire life. But the idea of being punished for eternity in hell did not develop until the 4th century from a bishop from Hippo named Augustine, who began to paint a picture of a retributive God that sends the unrepentant to the fiery underground. And as you know, fear can be an effective method in controlling people. Enter the Roman Empire and Roman Catholicism, the government and the church. With the concept of hell flourishing within the two great superpowers of the world at the time, and also subsequently spreading into Protestantism much later, it is no wonder that hell quickly became the pervasive belief in Christianity throughout the world. Understanding this context begins to help us see how biblical translations can be significantly influenced by what people already believe at the time they are translated. And since the belief of a retributive God that punishes people for eternity in hell was the predominant theology in Christendom, 
then that would be the obvious lens one would use to translate the Bible. Enter King James. When the Bible was translated into English in the 16th century, the old English word hele, side note, I'm not real certain that I'm saying that right, so let me spell that for you, H-E-L-L-E, pagan, which is the pagan word for abode of the wicked after death. Hele was the single word used in place of four completely different Hebrew and Greek words, each with different meanings. Those words are Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartaru. These are the original words from the original Hebrew and Greek texts. You will notice that this is not one single word being translated as hell, but rather four distinct words, each with different meanings and cultural contexts that were combined to construct the idea of eternity in hell. Interestingly, there's only one Hebrew word that was translated as hell. It was Sheol. Even more interestingly, Sheol means grave. And what we find is that it is a place where both the righteous and the unrighteous dead go upon death because both righteous and unrighteous people die and are buried. That is why there is no Jewish conception of eternity in hell, because the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, which is our Old Testament, does not conceive of such an idea. One ought to pause at this fact alone. If the tradition in which Jesus was born and raised did not even have the belief of eternity in hell, did the great theologian of hell just invent it? The answer is no, because the notion of eternity in hell is a man-made fiction. Even more disturbing is the selective bias of the King James translation. While the word Sheol is mentioned over 70 times in the Old Testament, it is only translated as hell half of that time. And why is that? Because it does not fit the already developed idea of eternity in hell. If both the righteous and the unrighteous dead go to Sheol, what does the translator do when the passage suggests that there are righteous people there? Do they translate it as hell? Do they really put the righteous people in hell? Of course not. They translate it as grave. Here is a perfect example of the problem, among many, and the inherent bias of translation. In Genesis 37, it states that when Joseph died, his father, Jacob, exclaimed, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in Sheol. It can't be grave sometimes, and eternity in hell at other times. It is disingenuous. There are not two meanings. It is just grave. To add to the madness, when the Hebrew Bible was translated to Greek, Sheol was translated to the Greek word Hades. And in the Greek world, Hades was widely known as the mythological god of the underworld who ruled with his wife Persephone in the house of Hades. I know they did the best they could, but translating Sheol to Hades picked up a lot of extra mythological baggage. But it should not be lost on us that the original Hebrew word Sheol is still the grave. It is the dwelling place of both the righteous and the unrighteous dead, and it signifies the singular problem that ultimately needs to be resolved, death and the grave. So when you read the verse in Revelation that says, Then death and Hades, read, Sheol or the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire, it is indicating that the last thing to be finally conquered and defeated is death. That is why early believers in Christ knew that their ultimate hope was deliverance from death, not a rescue from an eternity being tormented in hell. Even more, they knew that their future hope was not going to a spiritual heaven when they die, but resurrecting to new physical life at the renewal of all things. And that is why the parable of the sheep and the goats is so fascinating, because it gives us insight into the resurrection of all people, both the just and the unjust, and God's judgment and punishment at the renewal of all things. The parable tells of a future in which Christ gathers the nations together and separates them into two groups, the sheep and the goats, the favored and the unfavored, the just and the unjust. But according to the upside-down justice of God, those who are determined to be truly just are those who gave hospitality to the stranger, 
those who clothed the naked, those who visited the sick and imprisoned. And it is to the just that the king will say, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the cosmos. But here's the kicker. Those who actually perceive themselves to be righteous and just are actually the goats or the unfavored because they are those who ignored the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned during their time on earth. It is this group of goats who will not be welcomed into the kingdom, but will go away to eternal punishment. For the king will say to them, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This parable ought to be eye-opening for everyone, especially the religious. It is eternity in hell that this passage is suggesting. Do those who practice empty religiosity burn in the underworld with the wicked, the devil, and the fallen angels? What in the world is this passage telling us about God's punishment? Is Jesus really the great theologian of hell? or the great restorer of all. So let's take a moment to put our humanity into perspective. If a person is microscopic when viewed from less than a few miles away, and less than a nanoparticle when viewed from the moon, What is a person in a universe that is 46 billion times 5.8 trillion miles to its outer edge? I hate to say it this way, but from a size perspective, we are nothing. And if God created the universe, then is God not larger and even more pervasive than the entire universe? And if God's very essence, God's very composition, God's very DNA is love, then is this love not even more immense and even more unbounded than the utter vastness and expansiveness of this universe? Even more, if God's love is that immeasurable, that unfathomable, that exhaustively immersive, then how do we, as nearly non-existent human beings, measure up with that love? If we are nearly nothing in relation to that love, can we really be that much of an offense to such an overwhelming love? Can we really be that deserving of an eternity burning in hell? As those who are beloved, worthy, and valuable to this love, who are made in the image of this cosmically sized love, is this answer... It is an unequivocal no. From the very beginning of creation, God declared that this creation was good and that we were very good. And despite all the ways we have lived in relational disunion from God, which is sin, and then lived out that disunion, also sin, and even despite the ways in which we have participated in and perpetuated injustice toward others, this love has always been patiently, mercifully, and gracefully welcoming us back into the relationship that restores that original goodness. That is where this story has always been heading. So it is important for us to always be reminded who God really is and what God is really up to in history. Because once we lose sight of these truths, we can be very quickly and oh so easily begin creating a God in our own image. A God that isn't cosmically sized in love, with a heart for making all things whole and all things new. But a God that is very small, very conditional in love, and as punitive and vengeful as we are. The question that each of us need to continually ask ourselves are, what God am I seeking and pursuing? What God am I trying to find in the text and in the stories? What God does my heart really want to discover? In the parable of the sheep and the goats, if you want to find an angry, retributive God that sends the unjust to eternity in hell, you will find it. But if you trust that God is more than a monstrous character and actually the God that we see in the life of Jesus, then maybe there is more to the story. 
the most important Greek phrase in the sheep and goats parable is, again, pardon my Greek, kolosis aienos, which translated into English as eternal or everlasting punishment. The traditional understanding of that phrase, as you may surmise, is that a person is cast into hell for eternity. There are two problems with this translation and the subsequent belief. The word aionos does not mean everlasting or eternal. It means an age. The former indicates an unending duration of time, while the latter indicates a definite duration of time. My favorite example to prove this and to show again how biased the translation is toward what they need it to say is Matthew 28.20. The verse reads, I will be with you even until the end of Ionoios. The translator of Ionoios, again, my Greek is not up to par. The translators were forced to actually translate this word accurately as age because there is no such thing as the end of eternity or the end of everlasting because neither eternity nor everlasting has an end. The word means age, and it has a definite duration. So at the very worst, punishment, kolossus, for the unjust is a definite period of time. It is not unending. It is not for eternity. It is not everlasting. It is not forever. So what exactly is the nature of this punishment for the unjust? According to David Bentley Hart, this word originally meant pruning or docking or obviating the growth of trees or other plants and then came back to mean confinement, being held in check, punishment or chastisement chiefly with the connotation of correction. Colossus implies a punishment for the sake of growth. It is not retributive. So if the parable of the sheep and the goats is indicative of some sort of future punishment for the unjust, it is a corrective punishment for a definite duration with the ultimate hope of restoration. But the parable suggests that the punishment of the unjust will be in fire. How does a fire equate to corrective punishment with the hope of restoration? Previously, we discussed the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the unmerciful servant, and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. What we discovered was that when one faces the refining fire of God's love, it reveals the truth of who we are and how we have treated others. But it is a punishment not for the sake of retribution, but for the sake of individual transformation, the full restoration of a person into the right relationship with God and with others. This does not mean that it won't be painful or that it won't elicit a consuming sorrow. It absolutely will. Facing the truth of one's life, especially the truth of an unjust life, in the light of love, in the light of a love that is more immense and immeasurable and immersive than the entire cosmos, in light of a love that swallows each one of us whole as a microscopic piece of dust in the universe, will absolutely produce an immeasurable sorrow and regret. In religious circles, this would be referred to as repentance. But there is a significant religious baggage with that word that has completely distorted it and made it unrecognizable in its original form. To understand the true restorative heart of God, it is essential that we see clearly repentance, or in Greek, metanoia. In Greek mythology, Kairos was a god of opportunity, portrayed as a man with winged feet who was always on tiptoe, indicating constant movement. Kairos was adorned with a long, single lock of hair that extended from an otherwise bald head. It was understood that as Kairos, or opportunity, passed by, there was a fleeting moment in which one could seize Kairos by that lock of hair before the moment or opportunity had passed. However, when opportunity was missed, a shadowy, cloaked goddess named Metanoia stood in the wake of the missed opportunity. Metanoia symbolized the regret of missing the opportunity at the right moment. But there was also something more that Metanoia offered to those who were left in the path of a missed opportunity and the regret that accompanied it. A chance to reflect and then transform. Metanoia, Greek, meta equals after, and nous, mind. 
is an afterthought or reflection of a missed opportunity, which can elicit a feeling of regret, but that can also result in a change or transformation in one's mind, in one's heart, in one's life. While there's an obvious element of regret inherent in metanoia, it does not come as a result of threats or shame or damnation. Metanoia comes from self-reflection and contemplation after missing the opportunity and then facing the truth of one's life in light of God's loving kindness. That is where transformation begins. The refining fire of God's love does not confront in hostility or wrath. It surrounds us in compassion and mercy to reveal the truth about ourselves with the hope of transformation. But we must all face it. Some will face the fire of the Spirit in this lifetime and be transformed, but others might not. Either way, you will ultimately face the refiner's fire. Facing the fire is not for the sake of torment by a wrathful God. Facing the fire is done in the hope of one's transformation and restoration into a right relationship with God and others. This understanding gives us insight into the fires of Gehenna that Jesus referenced a handful of times throughout the Gospels. Gehenna is an Aramaic rendering of the Hebrew word Gehenom. It was a valley, a real physical location southwest of Jerusalem, where tradition states worshippers of the pagan deities Baal and Moloch sacrificed children by fire. Interestingly, when this location was translated by King James in the Old Testament, it was left as Hinnom, indicating a physical location. However, when it was translated in the New Testament, Gehenna was translated as hell and somehow made the leap to mean an eternity of punishment in the fiery flames. The problem with the connotation of Gehenna as an eternity in hell is that the two leading rabbinic schools of thought at the time of Jesus, Hillel and Shammai, each believed that the idea of Gehenna symbolically meant the place of punishment and purification for a limited duration. The concept of eternity in hell would have never entered their minds as the possible meaning of Gehenna. So the fundamental question is, was Jesus talking about an eternity in hell when mentioning Gehenna, or... Was he using Gehenna to speak to the prevailing belief at the time that it was a place of punishment and purification for a limited duration? Being that Paul never once mentions Gehenna or anything resembling eternity in hell a single time in his writings, but only that one must ultimately face the refiner's fire to test one's love, one must conclude that Jesus was not talking about eternity in hell, but something else entirely. While it's clear that eternity in hell is not supported by the biblical narrative, it's unclear as to whether all will be restored. In my opinion, God can't override the free will choice of any single individual, so there is a distinct possibility that there will be those who, despite experiencing the love essence of God and facing the truth of their lives, are not consumed with sorrow, and who shake their fist and resist the open-armed God who welcomes them in a life of shalom. And further, those who adamantly choose non-life. There is non-existence. However, as one who imagines that this narrative is truly the greatest story ever told, and as one who believes that no one can ultimately resist the cosmically sized love of God, as one who has hoped that the accomplishment of God's love through Christ is more impossibly beautiful than anything we could ever in this lifetime comprehend, I believe that there will be restoration of all things, and that includes even the hardest heart and the vilest offenders. And so let's discuss that. Another story from Brandon. I was talking to one of my best friends by phone the other day. She was seeking advice from my wife and I 
about a very difficult situation in which she finds herself with her mom, who is older and essentially wheelchair-bound. Her mom owns a house, but is unable to live independently and care for herself. Seriously concerned about her well-being, my friend welcomed her into her own home and began caring for her. Unfortunately, that is not what her mom wanted. She insisted upon returning to her own home, even if it meant putting herself at serious risk. And being that my friend does not have a legal right to make decisions on behalf of her mom, and being that her mom is of right mind to make decisions, my friend complied with her mom's wishes, even though she believed that it was to her mom's detriment. She could not force or impose her will on her mom, even though she loves her, even though she wants to care for her, even though she wants better for her, even though she can visualize her living a life in greater wholeness and fulfillment. Her mom said that she would just prefer to go home in isolation and face death. The truth is that one can't force a person to receive or reciprocate love or force a person to want a better life for themselves. And even though one may be able to visualize and even long for a person to live in greater wholeness and enjoy the loving community of others, it can still be refused. Although highly historically symbolic, if the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of where this future trajectory in God is ultimately heading, we find that our future is not being whisked away into a disembodied heaven but resurrected into a renewed and restored creation in which God's habitation is now among us. While all of creation has been groaning as a woman in labor, that which is being birthed in the present and then fully delivered in the future is a new creation. Although it is impossible to imagine heaven and earth coming together as one like a marriage and even more impossible to imagine this union giving birth to a new creation, we are given images of what it might actually be like in Revelation. In this marriage of heaven and earth, God's dwelling is now among us, and there is wholeness, completeness, and harmony in all things. And it is in this place where we find the last perfect union with God within ourselves, with other people, other cultures, other nations. It is where we each bring our pains, our burdens, our heartaches, our failures, our misgivings, our injustices, our tears, and they are all wiped away in mercy, in healing, and restoration. In this new creation, there is no more death and no more sorrow. And the community that lives in the city of new creation is full of life and love and celebration. It is a community in which creativity flourishes, in which occupation animates the spirit, in which serving others is our greatest gift. And it is a community in which the lights never go out. And despite the unfound belief by some that there is a wall to keep others out, the gates of this city will never be closed. This community never stops loving and never closes the city gates on anyone. Their invitation for others to join the celebration and feast at the table never ends. This may be surprising to you, but the text also suggests that there will be those who have chosen to live outside of the city of Shalom, outside of this community of life and love. That may be why Jesus says the path away from life is wide and leads to Apolia. While Apolia is typically translated as destruction, it can also mean to be caught off from what could have or what should have been. It is a loss of well-being. That is the judgment and punishment of God. It is God allowing a person to walk away from life and love and everything that makes them fully human and fully alive. God can't force a person to receive or reciprocate love or force a person to want a better life for themselves. And even though God can visualize and even longs for a person to live in greater wholeness and enjoy the loving community of others, it can still be refused. But the fundamental difference between our life experience now compared to our life experience in the new creation is faith. While faith in the present is the belief in things unseen, in the new creation there will no longer be faith. We will finally be in the presence of God's love essence and will no longer need to have faith in what is unseen because it will be fully revealed. While humanity has walked in dark shadows, grasping the walls in faith, 
to find our way forward in God. In the new creation, we will finally see and experience this love with no need for faith. What we have only tasted in part in the present will fully be realized in the age to come. And I wonder, in light of this fully realized future reality, who will be able to stand before this cosmically sized love without being completely transformed? No one. And here I'll speak for Brandon. That's why I believe all will ultimately be saved. I imagine each of us falling to their knees and saying, My God, my God, I never knew. For our God is a consuming fire. And it is this love essence that cleanses, purifies, and brings to the surface the truth of our lives and who we have been. It is no wonder that John the Baptist said that there would be one after him who would baptize with fire. For it is in this fire where one faces opportunities lost and injustices inflicted in their lifetime and views them in light of God's eternal love. This experience may elicit anguish, consuming sorrow, and shame. But surrounded by the loving kindness of God, it is also the place where self-reflection and contemplation meet and transformation begins. And in the distance is the loving community of God with gates and arms open wide like the father awaiting his long lost son. They are all standing united at the city gate, welcoming home every prodigal, reminding them that they have always been worthy. They have always been loved and that they have always belonged. If you are having trouble with this idea that God will be generous in mercy in the age to come, it is for this reason that Jesus told the parable of the workers in the vineyard. In this parable, the landowner paid the same amount to those hired late in the day as he did to those who worked all day. As you can imagine, this angered those who had been working all day. But in response to their anger, the landowner asked them if it is not lawful for him to do with his money as he wishes. He then calls out their agony at his generosity. The point of this story is to be joyous when God surprises us by rewarding everyone equally, even when others join in at the last moment, even when they miss all of the work in the vineyard and only drink the wine at the wedding feast. So whether it is this parable or in any other parable or teaching that reveals the wisdom of God, it never makes sense to our limited human wisdom. Our every inclination in trying to understand the way God works has always been wrong. God's kingdom ethic is always upside down and always antithetical to our ways. So as the overwhelming majority of Christians believe that 95% of humankind will burn in hell for eternity at the hands of retributive God, I am inclined to go with the God of unconvention, the God of surprises, the God of restoration, the God who says that the ways of human beings are not his ways, the God that cares more deeply about the integrity of the heart than religious pretense or ritual. The God that partners with and elevates the outcast, marginalized, and stigmatized as the greatest in his kingdom. The God that takes the seat of least importance in the back of the room, rather than the seat of honor in the front. The God that leads by serving. The God that blesses when cursed. The God that turns the other cheek when hit. The God that forgives when being tortured. The God that loves by dying. The God that wins by losing. I'm putting all of my chips in on that God. The God that just might have the audacity to restore everything and have mercy on everyone, even and especially when the so-called wisdom of the overwhelming majority says that it should all be destroyed by fire and sent to hell. And if this is really who God is, who will we be in the age to come? Will we be angry and indignant at the unending patient mercies of God to redeem everything and everyone? Will we be the accusers who say, but not that person, they don't deserve it, even though we all know that none of us deserve it. Will we be the people who gnash our teeth 
because we refuse to ever be in community with that person, that group, that nationality, that race? Or will we be on tippy-toe among the crowds lining the streets in celebration for the God who never abandons and who tirelessly seeks out the one? Will we be standing at the gate with our arms open wide, joyously welcoming every person home into this community of shalom? Will we be standing among the multitudes in exultation as Christ baptizes them in the lake of fire and then raises them up, transformed as a new creation in this resurrection life? For it is in this, the greatest story ever told, that God will be all in all. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but it will not be as a result of fear or threats of punishment of hell. But because of the goodness and mercy of God and a love that reveals and transforms the hardest hearts. And it is in this love that every disparate part in heaven and on earth will be brought back together in wholeness and unity and harmony. This is the renewal of all things. This is the restoration of all things. This is the reconciliation of all things. This is salvation for all people. And behold, all things are made new. I've struggled over the past few weeks as... I mean, it took like a month to record these, which is why you'll hear a few audio level differences because there was a little bit I was sick and, you know, different times of the day and Lord knows. I'm sure there's a better way to produce them, but I don't know how. I I struggled though with how to end this. I keep coming back to two things. The first is there's a part where Brandon said, you know, Christ isn't saving us from something. He's saving us into something and that is beautiful i love that and then the other thing that i keep centering on is that little part where we talk about kevin McAllister and home alone and the old scary shovel dude and you know where he's basically is you i can hear god pleading with humanity saying you know there are a lot of awful terrible hateful wrong things that are going around about me Let's be clear, I love you and they're not true. I am here, I wanna embrace, that is beautiful. There's so many things going around about God and none of them are true. And I don't know a better way to end than that. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Very huge thank you to both Brandon and to the music of Salt of the Sound for your music. I can't wait to talk to you all next week. Be blessed everybody.